the collective is nothing without the individual. And so it really does come down to individual action and, and the choices we make as individuals and the choices we sort of broadcast and invite others into. Like we can absolutely make an impact as an individual. Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I'm your host, Nick Lapara, and this is the podcast where we bring you the stories of people who saw something wrong in the world and gave a damn about it. If you keep up with the podcast, you know that we've taken a break over the last month. It was a much needed break, so thank you for letting me take it. There's a ton going on in my world right now, and I needed some time to breathe. I don't talk about finances a lot in the show, but part of the reason I needed to take a break is because I make very little money with this podcast because it costs me thousands of dollars each month between my time, paying a producer, editor, travel, etc. And I'm not sure I've figured out anything life-changing or revolutionary during this break, but I think I'm on to something. We've tried to keep it relatively ad-free because we want any ads and partnerships that we do take on to be very helpful and relevant for the kinds of stories we're telling and the premise of the podcast. And so that's why we don't do that a lot. And again, I don't know if I found out anything life-changing or revolutionary during this break, but we are working on some stuff, so we'll see. And if you love what we're doing and want to help, consider joining our Patreon by going to patreon.com slash let's give a damn. For the cost of a latte each month, you can have a tremendous impact on the growth and reach of this show. Thanks for considering. And if not, Keep listening. We're going to keep putting them out there. I promise. Anyway, thanks for letting me take the break. And we have some great conversations lined up this month for you. And today is no exception. It's my pleasure to introduce to you an amazing damn giver, Blythe Hill. Whether or not you've heard of Blythe, you've almost definitely heard of Dressember, a community of international advocates utilizing fashion and creativity to help end human trafficking. They've raised over $7.5 million since 2013. That's amazing. And this is shaping up to be their biggest year ever. Their goal is $2.5 million. If you've ever participated in Dressember, you know that your participation directly impacts the fight to rescue, protect, and restore the lives of trafficking victims and survivors worldwide. There is so much to unpack with Blythe in this conversation, so let's get right into it. Here's my conversation with the incredible Blythe Hill. It is a huge honor to have Blythe Hill on the podcast today. Blythe, thanks for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Of course. We, uh, everybody else doesn't know this, but I had a trip planned to Southern California, LA, specifically where you live. And we were going to do this in person today. Like we kept the same appointment. We kept the same time frame, but I had to cancel that trip for a variety of reasons. I'm so sad because I would have loved to have met you in person. We'll do that another time, but thank you for keeping the time and for agreeing to be on the podcast today. I'm excited to share your story. Yeah, absolutely. Let's, uh, let's get right into it. So some people might not know, I, I think more people probably know about what you do, what you created than maybe your name. And so uh, Blythe Hill is the founder of Dressember. Many of you, that rings a bell right away because you've been involved in a Dressember campaign. And we're going to get into all that here in a minute. So Blythe, I want to get to know you first, though, because this isn't primarily, we do want to advocate for, and I'm going to push as many people as possible toward your organization and teaming up with you guys this year for the 2019 Dressember. But it's mainly about you because I want to figure out uh, who you are, why you do what you do, how you came into it, because I think hearing your story is going to help uh, a handful of people, hundreds of people. I don't know. There's a lot of people listening to this podcast, but your story is going to hit certain people in a certain way that they need right now in their lives as they're figuring out how to give a damn. And so let's first, before we get to December, let us figure out who you are, why you do what you do, where you came from, all of that. So when I say, who are you, Blythe, like just share your story, share, share with us what comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, well, I grew up in a suburb of Seattle and yeah, now I'm, I'm in LA, moved down to Southern California when I was in high school to Orange County, which was a, an, a, a jarring transition. Um, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. But where in Seattle did you live and why did you guys leave? Yeah. I, I lived in Shoreline, Washington. So 
like okay. 20, yep. 30 minutes north of the city. And we moved because my dad is a college professor and he taught for years at Seattle Pacific University. Um, Got it. Yep. And then his uh, his older brother and his mother um, had sort of migrated down to Orange County. And so he started to look at, um, you know, just different options for us and applied and eventually got hired at Cal State Long Beach. So we moved to Orange County primarily to be closer to family. And then he commuted to Long Beach and still still works there and lives a little closer now. Oh, nice. So you're, you're close to family then still today. Yeah. So my, my mom and my oldest brother are up in Seattle still. And then okay. um, the rest of my family is LA, Orange County. In which ways was the move jarring? I mean, I, there's some obvious ways like <laughs> the weather and oh my you know, gosh, just yeah, very, very yeah, very culturally different um, for anybody that spent time in the PNW. Uh, Southern California is dramatically different, but for you, in which ways was it uh, different? And did those did you wrestling through those things help you grow? Were there any things that you like really struggled with making that move? Oh yeah, it was one of those like hardest, best things that you can't really appreciate sure. until years later, because <laughs> at the time it's just so like mildly traumatic. But yeah, it was, it was a number of things like the weather, like I just remember it being so bright. We moved, we moved in August, like right before the school year started. And I went back to school shopping and bought like all the clothes I would have bought in Seattle, like long corduroy pants and long shirts. And I just remember like sweating and staring at the ground the first few days of school because the sun was so bright and I was so hot. (laughs) Do you prefer like the PNW weather or do you prefer uh, Southern California weather, or maybe now you do and you didn't. Before. Um, you know, yeah, that's interesting. I, I've definitely adjusted. I've, I've been down here now longer than I lived in Seattle. Um, I miss it a lot in the fall and sure. you, you really can't beat the Pacific Northwest in the summer. It's just so beautiful. And the long summer days are like just yeah. so fun. When it gets really hot here, you know, we get our like 90 degree heat waves or whatever. And I don't like that. Um, but yeah. I sure have become used to like the just endless summer, always sunny. I feel like it's done. It's done well for my um, uh, like mental health <laughs> to, be, to yeah. be around sunshine all the time. But it was wild for a couple years. Like I sort of, you know, I resented the fact that we didn't have fall and that it does this weird thing where you don't feel like time is passing because the weather's not changing. I think in general, I prefer like, if I have to choose an extreme, I prefer cold than, than heat, but I've, yeah, I've definitely gotten used to the just warmth all the time. What were the things that led up to, um, again, if I have my timeline, right, 2009 is when you Mm -hmm. created Mm -hmm. kind of a style challenge, which again, years later turned into this organization we see now. What, what led up to that? Like, what were the things happening in your mind, in your life that, or maybe you, maybe your parents uh, kind of raised you all. I don't know if you have any, yeah, you said you have a sibling. Like, I don't know if you you guys were raised to kind of be aware of needs and things around people, people that need stuff and how we can create solutions and, or or what, what was going on that, that led you to that? Yeah. No, I wasn't really raised that way. I, I was raised in a, in a religious home. um, And so we were, you know, we were taught to be generous and we were taught to be aware of our own sort of like soul and spiritual health. I was raised primarily by my dad. I'm the youngest of four kids and my, my parents split when I was two. So I I really don't have any memories of them together. So as far as like the needs of the world, it's interesting. Like when I think about my understanding of needs as a child was, um, if you have a need, you have to find a way to meet it yourself or it's not going to get met. Um, in sort of a survivalist way. Um, And I think that, you know, that's part of just being the youngest of four. And then also my dad worked two jobs for a while when I was growing up. So it was, you know, I was making my own meals at a pretty young age. And then with, with Dressember, like how that contributed, it's interesting to think about because I think from a pretty young age, like I really, I wanted my life to matter for something. And that, I think was a, a great desire, but it also caused a lot of angst because yeah, I just was so like 
wrought with like, okay, what, what am I going to do with my life? And I need to find, like, I need to find my path and I need to figure it out. And I was not someone who had this like clear direction of like, oh, I'm going to be a lawyer. And so I'm going to go yep. to school for seven years or, you know, fill in the blank. Like I just was like, well, I like a lot of things. I like to draw and I like to write and um, tell stories and so it was hard for me, like when I, when I got to college, I sort of had this crisis of like, Oh, what do I, what do I even do? Like I need to choose a major. And so I need to choose my life path right now. And I changed my major at least four times and finally settled on English because it felt broad enough, but still attached to enough of my interests writing and just kind of had to let it, let the idea of like picking a path from that moment, I had to let that go and just like, okay, I'm going to leave things open enough. But then Dressimmer was like on a totally different wavelength that truly started from this place of like play and um, creativity. And it was almost like this response to the seriousness of my like academic and like vocational path that I was on and all the tension I felt there. It was sort of like, I need some sort of release. Like I need a creative outlet because I'm drowning in academia and in the the pressure that I'm putting on myself and feel others putting on me that in their defense, I don't really think they were. I was just um, externalizing a lot of the tension I was putting on myself. Sure. And my boyfriend at the time, who is now my husband, was just... That's nice when that works out. Yeah. I mean, we, <laughs> we definitely had some... We, we had our own winding road there. Um, of course. But uh, yeah, so we, we were together at this time. And um, I mean, this is true of him today, but he just has like, you know, delights in my uh, quirks and, you know, the different like sort of whims I have. He's really always encouraged those. And so when I sort of, when I had this idea of like, oh, what if I try wearing a dress every day for a month? He was like, totally. <laughs> You should do that. That's awesome. And then, um, I mean, yeah, it's sort of, well, actually the, the first idea I had was to wear a scarf every day for a month and it was going to be in September, scarf timber. Cause I love puns. And so I was like, Oh, well, if I'm going to do this, like I need a second layer of a great name. And since we're talking about like geographic locations and the weather, <laughs> it was yes. just, it's a way too hot in Southern California in September to wear scarves every day and so i was like okay i can't do that yeah, you don't want to die from a heat stroke oh while you're gosh, trying to prove yeah. a point and do Would something good turned into sweat timber really fast yes. <laughs> and a really not so way. so were you always i mean this is obviously a project that is expressing itself in the form of fashion right were you always interested in fashion or was it just simply like hey a dress is a way to make a statement i mean a lot of people don't wear dresses these days. You know, a lot of a lot of women don't wear dresses anymore. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a more of a rare thing. So was it more of a statement or was was fashion like very closely tied to choosing dresses as the means for getting this statement out? You know, it definitely wasn't an intentional choice of like I'm going to choose a dress because it's um, charged or avant-garde in some way. It was like I like dresses and I have a yeah. lot of them and um, yeah, I, I have always loved fashion and loved, um, clothing as a form of expression and identity and creativity. You know, it actually like the idea of a dress started because my, one of my best friends, she, yeah, we were just sort of like, so curious about this idea of like expressing yourself through fashion and also sort of surprising people through fashion. Um, like I used to joke, like, you know, the sale rack is my favorite because I'll go find like the ugliest thing and make it look cool. Hmm. <laughs> um, I don't really do that anymore. Um, but at the time, like I loved that and, and th my friend Shannon, so she was like, you know what, I'm going to try wearing the same dress for a week and just see if anybody notices. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. um, so yeah, it's sort of it, something with like dresses was sort of interesting to us at the time. Um, I think the fact that it's like an entire outfit in one piece was part of it. And then also I was just like, yeah, I have a lot of these. Like, why don't I just like try wearing dresses for a month and see if anyone notices. And when you did that in 2009, did people notice all on their own that you were wearing this each and every day? Um, a couple people, but it's, it's not that unusual in LA to wear dresses in December. Mm, and so, sure. um, 
it was more something that like people didn't really know I was doing unless I told them. Gotcha. Gotcha. And so, uh, 2009 is when you did your first, you know, challenge for yourself. And then 2013 is when you aligned the, the vision of December, the idea, the project with, uh, anti-human trafficking. How did that, like, how did you get interested in using this kind of project that you came up with to say, oh, I can do this and also fight human trafficking? What, what was the human trafficking element there and how did those two get connected? Yeah, so I, I had learned about human trafficking when I was in college and in another way, it sort of added to my like angst, all the like angst and tension I was already feeling because I, I really just like stumbled on this article about sex trafficking in India and I had never, it was yeah, the very first time I ever heard that this was happening. And I was just completely horrified. It just like stopped me in my tracks. And I was like, why is no one talking about this? And like, mm. we've, yeah, I've got like, I have got to do something about this. And um, at that time it was perceived largely to be something that was happening on the other side of the world, you know, in developing countries. And so it felt very much like, okay, I've got to, I've got to move to India and become a social worker or, um, you know, at least right now I need to change my major and pursue criminal justice or psychology or, um, you know, any of these sort of like conventional pathways that I, that appeared to be the only ways to engage with the issue. And so that added to my like vocational tension and like the, who am I and what am I here for tension? Because I was like, how can I feel so passionate about this? And yet so like, just any of these pathways don't feel true to who I am and how I'm wired. And it felt like this, I just felt so conflicted because I, yeah, I felt so power, so passionate, but so powerless that like, well, if I, if I reroute my career path, I'm sort of betraying who I really am. But if I don't do that, I'm betraying this like passion and urgency that I feel. So that was a hard few years while I just sort of like, watched and learned more about the issue and didn't feel like I had a way to be involved. And so then with Dressember, when Dressember was growing as just this like quirky style challenge, a friend suggested like, oh, you should turn that into like a campaign, a fundraiser. And I was like, are you out of your mind? Like that is, that's never going to work. We're just getting dressed. We're not running a marathon or like biking across country in our dress. We're literally just getting dressed. And so really didn't see how that model could ever work. And then I really credit Movember a lot for showing me like, oh, that can work. Like, you know, mil if, if men can raise millions of dollars by growing facial hair, then like there's a chance that we can use this, you know, style challenge, committing to wearing a dress every day as a way to raise money and awareness for an issue as well. And it was a very easy choice for me when I was like, okay, I think I am ready to, to think about turning this into a campaign. It was, um, an easy choice for me to align it with anti-trafficking. Yeah. I'm really glad you've, uh, you know, with the help of your friends and then seeing Movember, I'm, I'm really glad that you figured out, cause that, that's something that I have figured out in my years of, you know, my first career was 13 years in the nonprofit world, and I left that three years ago to to do what I'm doing now, which is half the time I don't know what the hell I'm doing, and I'm creating all these I'm creating all these you know projects and resources, and I speak and do consulting and whatever I'm making right now that's three years old. But one thing I have discovered in all of this time is people they mean well, and I truly believe I started Let's Give a Damn fully believing that every single person wants to give a damn. Every yeah. person, mm-hmm. everybody has. It could be really small. It could be that voice could be drowned out by, you know, just bad habits, evils that we're committing in the world. Like I believe, like I really believe that the the not to name any names, but I will drop a couple. I believe the Donald Trumps and the Jeffrey Epstein, these people that were just like, or at least I think are terrible people. Like I believe that somewhere along the way, and they still might have it inside of them, but like they wanted to do good and it got drowned out by whatever it is, greed, making money taking advantage of people, whatever. And so from that premise of, I believe everybody wants to give a damn, I just think that the the hurdle that we have to get over and the hurdle that you did get over by creating this, you know, like you said, it's kind of a quirky, just like style challenge is that people, it's either they don't have the 
the drive and the creativity enough to figure out how, you know, the outlet that they need to give a damn, or they're just too lazy. Like people have just, there's just so much going on and they need someone to say, they need Blythe to stand up and say, Hey, wear a dress for a month, ask your friends to donate some money and we can, we can end human trafficking in our lifetime. Right. Mm -hmm. They just need someone to give them direction. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I'm glad that you didn't, you know, that you listened to your friends and listened to what you were seeing around you, because obviously as we're going to continue to discover in this conversation, like it's turned into something just really tremendous, like mind blowing what this project that again, just in 2009, 10 years ago or 11 years ago, depending on when in 2009 it was, like started out as just like, a, I'm going to do this on my own. You know, now it's had a, just a huge, huge effect. So, you know, good on you for just kind of listening to your friends in the universe and saying, well, let's, let's take this quirky thing and see, see where it goes. And so 2013, which was the first year that you were kind of like doing this as an organization, I guess, uh, $165,000, right? Which is, a, which is nothing to shake a stick at. Like that's a lot of money. How did that feel and what happened in that year that caused it to kind of, you know, blow up in, in, in its very first year of being a thing? Yeah, it, um, it was, it was wild. It felt, it felt surreal. Um, because I, I was thinking like, Oh, like, is this going to work? You know, are people, are people going to like this? I'm, I'm taking something that's just like purely fun and adding this very serious layer to it. And so I was thinking like, Oh, like this could flop. Like I could look really stupid because also like, you know, for anyone new to it, like they're just going to take one look at it potentially and think like, who, who is this girl? Like, who does she think she is that she can like ask people to give money for this very serious issue by doing something as flippant and potentially vain as putting on a dress and, and taking pictures, you know, like who is this girl who thinks she can, uh, end modern day slavery by putting on a dress. Um, and so I, I had set what I thought was a very like ambitious and bold goal to try to raise $25,000. Wow. Um, and yeah, was going into it with that mindset of like, okay, this could flop, but like maybe, maybe with enough, enough people and enough momentum, we can come close to $25,000. And we, we hit my like big scary goal on day three and then raised $165,000, like you said, which is like six times my goal. Um, wow. so yeah, the, the whole month just felt like oh my gosh, like, this is a really good idea. Like, this is an even better idea than I thought. And, and I've got to do something more with this. And I started to dream about like, oh, like, oh, yeah, like, this is it. Like, this is, this is what I was born to do. Was it before this, before you saw this tremendous outpouring of, you know, just generosity, 165k? Was it before or after or during that time that you decided, okay, let's make this a formal thing? Uh, let's, you know, form an organization, pursue 501c3's uh, nonprofit status. Like where in all of this did you decide, okay, this is not a joke anymore. This is a real thing. People want it. People need it. It's a, it's a, okay. it's something that people want. Where in all of this did that happen? Yeah, I think it kind of happened during it from the sense that I was thinking like, oh my gosh, like, yeah, this is, this is way bigger. And like, there's so much potential here. And then immediately after was when I I hired a lawyer and applied for 501c3 certification, um, which was also scary because I was like, I have no background in nonprofit right. management, but here we go. You know, like, let's build this thing from the ground up. And I mean, yeah, yeah that just, it, it was sort of like during and after. And I mean, in a lot of ways, we're like, you know, still building things. We're still changing things every year. Yeah. On that note. Um, it looks like here from the timeline that I see you worked, uh, for little or no pay for quite some time. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, technically this idea was birthed in 2009 and it's 2019. So again, 10 or 11 years, depending on what time in the year, like you actually, I guess it was December. So, uh, 10 years. And then in 2013, it became a real thing. And then, but you didn't get, you 
were kind of a volunteer CEO for a while, right? Mm -hmm. Before it, it was, it was still years away from you actually getting paid. So let's talk about that. I want to, after we talk about this, I want to talk, I, I want you to explain to everyone how this actually works, right? So people, you know, I know that this year's goal is 2.5 million, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so once all that money comes in, you know, by December 31, I'd love for you to kind of explain how it all works. Like, how does this actually fight against human trafficking? But before that, there's a lot of people listening to this podcast right now. And I know that, that because they hit me up, one of the biggest questions and one of the biggest things that I wrestle through with people that I consult with through Let's Give a Damn or podcast listeners is how do I, I have this dream, I have this idea, I have this thing I want to do, whether it's for-profit, non-profit, social enterprise, whatever it may be, something in, our na in their neighborhood. I, the biggest thing that always comes up is I don't know how to pay for it, right? And you and I both know this, you being in the nonprofit world right now and me spending 13 years in that world and still very involved on, I, I sit on some boards and stuff, is that that is the big question is there's no shortage in my mind. I mean, there's, there's some bad ideas, but there's no shortage of good ideas, people ready to rock and roll with these ideas, uh, very amb lots of ambition, lots of passion, all of that stuff. But there is a shortage of figuring out how to bridge the gap between great idea and money, whether you're selling a product or whether you're asking for donations. So how, for, for those listening that are kind of in that uh, space right now, what was it like to work for years um, as, a, as a volunteer uh, before you actually, it looks like, you know, in just a couple of years ago, being able to come on full time and, you know, begin to build a small team? Yeah, Um you know, for me, it was, it was such a labor of love that it didn't feel like work. Um, I mean, it felt it, it was work, but it was also, I guess I was just motivated to do it by something different than a normal nine to five job, which at the time I had sort of, you know, I had been working a couple years for this corporate job um, in trend forecasting. And at that point, like it was, um, I was comfortable enough in the role that it didn't demand a lot of my like mental energy. Like I still had an excess of energy to give something else. So I want to acknowledge that. Like I, I didn't have a super demanding job that I had to take home, you know, at the end of the day or on the weekends. Like I, I had this mental space and energy to, to give to Dressember on nights and weekends. And so that's what I did for years. Yeah, I think for three years, um, um, or like two and a half or three years, I was essentially like a volunteer CEO. And then I came on part-time and was part-time for about a year and a half um, or two years. And that was my idea. I was just like, okay, I want to, I want to work towards this dream of, of giving all my time to the organization, but I also have to acknowledge that the resources aren't there. Um, or if yeah. they, I mean, they, they are, but it also like, there's an interesting tension with the board of like, well, the board is supposed to hire me. <laughs> and, um, yeah. so I have to build a case. And so initially I built a case to bring me on part-time to kind of bridge this gap of like, okay, we, we almost have the resources and I think we're going to get there faster if, you know, the sooner I'm able to give all of my time to it. But my first hire was actually, I didn't, we didn't hire me first. We hired, I hired an accountant who's still with the organization. Cause I just knew from day one, like, okay, I am not a numbers person. I'm not, I'm not a, a, a money or financial person. And so in any business, but especially in a nonprofit where your financials are so transparent or should be, it was really important to me that we steward our resources with excellence so that was, yeah, that was the first hire in 2014. So you've been, you know, full-time for a couple of years now. It seems like a small team, which is really admirable and cool that you guys are able to do what you do with, what is it, four, five, six people? It doesn't look like a lot. Yeah, we have five. Um, we've got three full-time and two part-time. Awesome. Um, and then we have this army of interns. We have about yes. 25, 30 interns. Is that one of your teammates like full-time job is to take care of interns or do, or do you all share the love? Um, it's, it's split between three people, not including myself. I've learned that like, okay, I am not a manager. Like it, it's a hard experience for both me and anyone I manage. Like I'm a leader. I hire self-starters, but um, anytime I've 
manage interns. I just feel like it's, they've not gotten out of it what they could or should have. And I am always disappointed in myself too. So I've got Madeline on my team who's amazing at managing people. She's so like clear and affirming and she tends to manage like 15 interns on her own for their editorial interns for blog content. Yeah. And social media interns. Um, and then Marissa on my team usually takes a couple for events, um, or community outreach. And then Jillian will usually have one or two for admin. Yeah. So Madeline takes the bulk of them. Um, but she's also just so good at it (laughs) from my vantage point. That's amazing. That's amazing. So I want to spend uh, a good chunk of the remaining time that we have learning from you and, and helping kind of mine some wisdom that you've been able to kind of accumulate over the years. But before we get to that, if, if, if you and I are walking into an elevator and I say, how does Dressember work? I come on as an advocate or as a donor. How does it work? How does the impact actually happen? What would you, what would you share with me on that elevator ride? Yeah. So what we've done at Dressenburg is we have created an easy, fun way for someone who's passionate about the issue of human trafficking to, to engage in and have a significant impact. And, you know, whatever their role is, their career, if they're a stay-at-home mom, if they work in finance, like, you know, they have to get dressed. And so we've, we've given them this easy tool of, you know, grab a dress or tie um, and commit to to wearing that every day of December as a way to raise awareness and, and funding for anti-trafficking. Um, and then we, we see it as our role to really equip and educate and empower our advocates, which is what we call our fundraisers, um, with a language and tools and resources for how to talk about this issue and, and how to have an impact. And primarily through this annual campaign, we've been able to raise seven and a half million dollars in the last six years. Um, Yeah. And then we use that money to, we partner with organizations around the U S and around the world and um, strategically resource programs that are working to dismantle trafficking from every angle. So on the prevention side, there's like foster care advocacy and education and outreach to LGBTQ and homeless youth across the U S there's outreach to refugee populations across the world, you know, educating them on like fake job opportunities, and then all the way through with intervention and rescue and um, therapy, aftercare, job training when when needed, safe housing when needed. Um, so it's pretty holistic and comprehensive. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're that that seems like it'd be a pretty hefty job in and of itself. A trying to find the right partners but also, yeah, trying to figure out how to partner with them, right? Like what, you know, certain projects they're doing, maybe not just like sending them a lump sum check, but saying, hey, what is the most meaningful way? We've got this money, right? Hopefully January 1 of 2020, you're going to have $2.5 million from this year, right? Um, But like, okay, so now we've got this money. Like, do you guys have like a criteria you're trying to fill? Like, hey, we need this many organizations working directly on anti-human trafficking, directly with homeless youth, directly with LGBTQ. Or do you guys just kind of like intuitively feel that out? Um, It's a both and. We take on partners pretty slowly compared to other foundations, I think. Um, And well, and part of that is just staffing, you know, like until a year ago, well, a year and a half ago, I was the only full-time person on staff. And so now with, uh, with Marissa on board, who's our director of partnerships, she has really come alongside me to help with our partnerships um, and our program partners to really investigate, yeah, like, okay, who else is out there that we could potentially partner with? And then we're continuously sort of refining and honing our application process. So we have a whole... Um, process that is over the course of several months we require all of our current and prospective partners to apply every year um so it involves like a questionnaire and supplemental materials and then we have internal review and we also have external review through a a committee of it's our grant advisory committee and they're composed of different experts in the trafficking arena around the world and we keep them confidential so they're not being you know romanced or 
solicited in any way throughout the year, but they, they do our external review. And then my board of directors is also part of the like final review and approval, obviously. And yeah, so the, the criteria that we have is it can look kind of broad from an outside perspective because it's words like sustainability and innovation and, you know, words that can mean different things to different people reading them. Um, but to us, we kind of have different things in mind as far as um, like impact measurement and cultural sensitivity is on there. And so for us, that means something very specific around like, okay, namely, if it's an international organization, what does their staff look like internationally? Are they majority local to the area? Did um, Was it a sort of community-led initiative or did... Um, this organization come in from the outside and sort of decide like, Oh, this is wrong and we need to fix it. You know, there's just kind of different mindset. And you, those are things that are nuanced, but are pretty easy to pick up on fairly early on. Um, so yeah, that's just sort of a glimpse at some of our criteria for, for how we're looking for partners. But as far as like, Oh, we need, you know, we need five partners who are doing LGBTQ outreach or something like that. We're not, we're not really, checking boxes in that way. It, it also depends on the year and what our object objectives for the year are. Um, so a couple years ago, it was really important to us to expand geographically across the U.S. And so we literally took a printout map of the U.S. and we're like, okay, we're inviting organizations from, um, you know, every region to apply. And then um, we hope to get as many of those regions represented. But that doesn't always work out, you know, as far as like, okay, we invited X organization to apply and thought they were a shoe in. And then these issues came up with, um, with the application and through the external review and fill in the blank. So there's some, some variables, but we do sort of have a broad stroke approach to it when we go into it. And when did you decide, is, is that a more recent thing to decide to bring in the male species into this uh, whole thing with the ties, not that, not that men can't wear dresses and women can't wear ties, but you know what I'm saying? Like when was that, a, is that a brand new thing? Cause I, I saw a lot of talk around the ties this year. Um, is that new or is that something you guys have been doing for a year or two now? It's not new, but it's, it's, it's funny. Like it feels new, I think to a lot of people, especially cause this is our first year that we've had our own tie collection. So one of my like good guy friends was like, Hey, I saw that you guys are inviting men to, to wear ties this year. And I was like, Oh, it's so funny. Like, you know, I, I try to have a lot of grace for people, but we've had men participating since 2015, I think. Yeah. And it, it wasn't, my idea or, or our idea on the team, it was something I saw on Instagram. It was a guy using the dress number hashtag. And he kind of, he said something like, you know, Oh, my friend Audrey is doing dress number and I care about this issue too. So I'm going to join in by wearing a tie. And I loved that and reposted his photo. And then some more guys joined in and the next year, even more guys joined in. And so we made it this like official, invitation in I think 2017. So yeah, every year we kind of, we try to be a little more in, inclusive in that way. Um, so that, you know, what we're seeing is, yeah, more and more men are, are joining in and, and it's awesome. And it, it is a little like choose your own adventure. Cause we've seen, you know, occasionally a man put on a dress or a skirt. We've had, we've had a, a Scottish guy put on a kilt for, for dress number, which is cool. Um, or we've seen women, uh, put on ties, which I think is awesome too. Like one of these years, I want to do a tie year. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Switch it up. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it is like, okay, well it's, it's honestly, it's less about the piece of clothing. It's more yeah. about like, this is a tool or a vehicle for joining this, this community and this movement and um, yeah, choose your own adventure and, and, and either way, just join in and have an impact with us. And, and it's, it's really important to me to have men join in because we still live in a day and age where a man's voice and a man's actions are um, like, they carry more weight than a woman's. And I like, I hate that, but it's like, okay, well that's, it's still true. And so we've got, I mean, yeah. And, and then there's this thing of like, well, also we just need everyone to be part of this conversation and everyone needs to be part of this fight because it's such a huge issue and such a huge industry that 
it's we're never going to stand a chance against it until we all come together and also until it's not perceived as this like women's issue you know because it's not a women's issue at all no no not at all and i mean in 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 most cases uh because men have throughout history predominantly owned the kind of uh you know authority realm uh most of the people inflicting you know human trafficking in these things are men um mm-hmm. and so it it is vital it is vital as you've already pointed out that men get involved to say hell no like we're standing we're standing against this and we're going to fight you know for dress ember to do the work that they do i love all of that and for anybody wanting to get involved is is the best way just to go i mean your your website's great super helpful so dressember.org or is there a more specific place that they can go um dressember.org is probably the the simplest because they can find all the info and they can shop the the apparel and ties if they want to but if you do just want to go i mean and you can when you're at dressember.org press become an advocate right at the top right yeah but if a person wants to go directly to sign up they would go dressember2019.org and that goes straight to the campaign site i love it blythe you have you have a very captive audience of and i love the people that listen to this podcast that are involved in let's give a damn it's 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 really amazing to see all the things that they're doing in their, you know, in the, in the towns, communities, cities, states, countries that, that they're all from. You have a very captive audience right now. Can you share with them what, your, what you've learned about giving a damn, what you've learned about helping people? Again, you've, you, did, you did so many years of amazing work as a volunteer. I'm sure it hasn't been easy. Um, you know, you have you have a, a family and you have all these things going on. If, if I was to say like top three, not even pieces of advice, because advice is neither here, here nor there. We shouldn't listen to most advice that we hear, but like just some wisdom, some things that you've learned, just some things that stick out. If I was to say, what have you learned? Like, what do you want to share with us that has been really helpful and meaningful to you? Like what comes to mind? What can you share with us? Um, okay. I'm sure there's a lot of things I could potentially share, but the thing that like immediately comes to mind is this idea of like individual action. You know, I don't know that I would have admitted this years ago, but I I think in retrospect, I really didn't think that my actions mattered all that much in the grand scheme of things. Like, Oh, does it really matter? Like I'm just one person. Like it doesn't matter what I say or what I do or what I buy, you know, as long as I'm not directly hurting anyone, like my actions don't really matter in the grand scheme of things. And I, through Dressember, have really come to realize like, no, it, like, I mean, okay, so the, the collective, there is this like unique power in the collective, but it completely 100% relies on the individual as part of that collective. Like, the collective is nothing without the individual. And so it really does come down to individual action and and the choices we make as individuals and the choices we sort of broadcast and invite others into, like we can absolutely make an impact as an individual. Um, And I also, you know, I felt this coming back from a trip that I took not too long ago to India. I, I came back just completely overwhelmed. I was like, Oh my gosh, like trafficking is this, symptom of misogyny and an evil, you know, that it, it's, it felt symptomatic and I felt just completely overwhelmed because it was like, well, what, what can I begin to do about like systemic misogyny that's existed for thousands of years? And what I eventually like had to uh, come around to in my own like heart and, and will is like, okay, I, I cannot help everyone it's, it's impossible for me to help everyone, but I can help someone and, and that matters so much. I think sometimes we get so caught up in like, well, I've got to do something big and it's got to affect the world. And, um, I feel really humbled because I have created something that has impacted more of the world than I ever thought I would. But at the same time, just being able to impact one person. And, and again, we really downplay our own impact on the day-to-day, like the day-to-day conversations we have with each other and with people around us and acquaintances and strangers. Um, to impact one person 
is to change their whole life. Um, and so, yeah, I'm starting to <laughs> starting to ramble a bit, but I just, I no, think like great. learning to give a damn about your own immediate impact, however small it might feel, um, is, is really, it's been really liberating for me. No, that's super. I mean, that's just, that's tons of wisdom right there. I mean, even looking back at your story, right, 2009, you had no idea what this would become and you did it anyway, right? And that's, that's hugely important. And I, I don't think, you know, if people are, if people have a religious bent that are listening right now, you could say, you could say God, or if you don't, you could say the universe, whether it's God or the universe, you're, you're, you're not going to be entrusted with bigger things unless you care about the individuals, right? For anybody, whether it's Blythe Hill of Dressember or Scott Harrison of Charity Water, or you name your organization or project or thing, they didn't have the big thing always. They didn't have the big project. They were faithful in the day-to-day. They were faithful in the, the everyday interactions with the somebodies, the, the, the individuals out there that needed help. And that's where it starts. And I, I truly believe that when if you're faithful in the day-to-day, then the, the universe will reward you with kind of bigger, you know, bigger things to work on, right? You don't just jump into this. And I find people all the time that I talk with that are just enamored with, you know, in this social media culture, right? Where it's like, we got to get the big thing that looks sexy on social media, that gets lots of likes, raise a shit ton of money, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, I don't think you're going to get that until you spend days and months and years just serving people in the everyday. Um, I, so I think that's huge, huge, that's, that's uh, wisdom that is well-received, at least for me, from you, because you've put in the time. So thank you for, thank you for sharing that. Okay, let's wrap up here. I've, you've been gracious to give us and me so much of your time. I have a big question for you, though, and I, this is, uh, this, I asked this same question to every podcast guest before we wrap up. The question is, or this, the, let me paint a scenario for you real quickly, someday, life in the very distant future, hopefully you're going to die. Um, and on that day, for some odd reason, I'm asked to give your eulogy. I'm asked to celebrate and mourn your life in front of your family, your friends, all the people you've worked with and all the people that Dressember has affected and anything else you've done at that point. It's a big stadium full of people because you've done a really kick-ass job at living a meaningful life. And again, for some odd reason, I've been asked to give your eulogy. In just a few short sentences, what do you hope that I would speak about your life and legacy on that day? Oh my gosh. (laughs) It's the big one, Blythe. It's the big one. Oh my gosh. Um, Wow. Well, I think when it all comes down to it, if I have left people feeling loved and seen, like really uniquely seen and like loved and delighted in, um, then I will feel like my life was a success. Hmm. I mean, there's all the other stuff about modeling advocacy and fighting for the underdog and fighting for, for those who have been silenced to be able to have their voice heard. But I think all of that really, really boils down at its most like fundamental level to the idea of, of love and the vulnerability that comes with that. Yeah, that's, that's such a huge question. I, yeah, I, I, think, I think because in this like overwhelming way, again, I've like created something that is impacting people I will never meet, um, both advocates, supporters, and women and children and men who are impacted by trafficking. I don't know. I feel sensitive to the idea of like being called a hero. I think I just sort of opened this gate for a lot of people to engage in an issue that we all care about. And, and I, I did it because I'm just a flawed, broken person too. You know, like I, I recognize that in myself and, and see how any one of us could be exploited and how it's not right for for any of us to be exploited. Yeah. I'm definitely surpassing your few sentences limit here, but totally fine. If you manage to achieve that and you're well on your way there, all the things you described, like that's a life well lived. Um, 
And as we wrap up here, you know, let me just remind you, you're doing good work. You know, hero, I, I get the kind of like the sexiness we kind of put around the word hero, but it truly is just someone that acted courageously, acted nobly, acted, you know, acted out of integrity. And the way that I describe it with under the let's give a damn brand is someone who saw something wrong and gave a damn about it because every day we're faced with those things. And so with that definition, you are doing heroic work. And, and so I want to encourage you. I'm sure it's super tough. And again, thank you for spending time with us today. Uh, this was super, super fun. I really enjoyed talking with you. I hope we get to do it again. Yeah, me too. And for everybody else, dressember.org, uh, click on the Become an Advocate button to learn more. All the tabs have, there's a learn more, there's our impact, there's, you can even see a, a list of all the the uh, partners that they have that they're working with that we talked about a few minutes ago. So go check that out. You've still got time to get in for this, this year to help them hit their $2.5 million goal. Super ambitious, but you did 165K before you even knew what you were doing. So I have no doubt you guys will hit this. Um, again, Blythe, thanks for joining us today. Of course. Thanks, Nick. Dear friends, I hope this conversation was super helpful for you. I know it was for me. I loved talking with Blythe. And I hope you'll get involved with Dressing. If you plan on doing so, today is the day. We are obviously ramping up for December, so don't wait any longer. Go to dressember.org right now and click on the Become an Advocate button. If you have any questions or thoughts about this conversation, you can reach out to Blythe Hill on her Instagram, at Blythe Hill, or you can find me anywhere on the socials, at Nick Lapara or at Let's Give a Damn. I would love to talk with you about this conversation or any conversation we've had. This show was created by me, edited by Chad Snavely, and the music is by Propaganda. I'm your host, Nick Lapara. Please share this episode with people you like and the people you don't like. Just make sure you share. We put a lot of time and love and energy into these podcast episodes, and we want to get them to as many damn givers as possible. Just a reminder that it will take you less than 15 seconds to hit the share button in your podcast app right now, copy the link, and send it to a friend via text or however you want to. Thank you so much for doing that. Can't wait to spend time with you next week. I love you. Peace. Peace.